Obviously, Sunday morning is the traditional time for Christians to gather together. That's not to say, however, that we shouldn't gather at other times as well. You know, during the school year, many of us meet together on Wednesday and Sunday evening for study. And at various times throughout the year, we gather together for, for meals and, and fellowship. On Wednesdays, we study selected books of the Bible. And on Sunday nights, Sunday evenings, we explore a variety of topics. We've, we've read Christian novels together. We've discussed parenting and family life. We've wrestled with current uh, societal issues. We've studied theological questions. We've learned how to defend our faith and, and much more than that. This year, we're going to be taking an around-the-world journey through history, which will include videos and a very interesting book of stories about and pictures of objects from 2,000 years of Christian history. I think, I think you'll really enjoy that. But again, the traditional time for all of us to meet together is Sunday morning, but that may not have been the case for the early Christians. You know, most scholars believe that they actually met on what we would consider to be Saturday night. A new day began for them at sundown. So even though Acts 20 verse 7 notes they gathered together to break bread on the first day of the week, it was probably Saturday night when they got together. Be that as it may, Paul makes it very clear that it really doesn't matter what day of the week we observe for the Lord. Only that we not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Well, I guess I should say the last part of that statement may have come from Paul because it's found in Hebrews. The point is, it's okay to meet on Saturday or Sunday or any other day of the week. And it's okay to meet more than once a week. In fact, I would highly recommend it. It's hard to really get to know your brothers and sisters if the only time you see them is on Sunday morning. And while I believe you can learn a lot, I hope, from a 20-minute sermon, you can obviously learn more and share in more if you take advantage of those additional opportunities to get together. And you never know what you're going to miss if you're not there when believers get together. Obviously, the biggest event of all time took place on Easter Sunday morning. But something pretty exciting happened on Easter Sunday evening as well. Thomas wasn't there, so he missed it. But those who were there witnessed something they would never forget. Jesus stood in their midst. Continuing in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
Jesus had already appeared to Mary Magdalene, a group of women, Cleopas and a companion on the road to Emmaus, and Simon Peter. But the disciples still didn't believe that Jesus was really alive. Where they had gathered together, it doesn't say. Perhaps it was the upper room where they had celebrated the Passover. Maybe it was somewhere else. All we know for certain is that they were together and that they were discussing the events of the day. Cleopas and his companion were there telling of their experience, and Luke tells us that others were there with them. They were all behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, and suddenly Jesus was in their midst. John doesn't tell us how he got there. Liberal theologians have suggested he climbed through a window or dropped down from the roof. But we can dismiss those suggestions. Jesus just appeared. One minute he wasn't there, and the next minute he was. We generally attribute his ability to appear and disappear to the special nature of his resurrected body, but that really isn't necessary. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to be in a resurrected body when he walked on water. So why would it be necessary for him to have a special resurrected body to walk through walls? Or on safer ground to simply acknowledge that Jesus miraculously appeared and that he greeted them with peace be with you. I have to laugh when I think about that. Because of something Matt did years ago when attending a Catholic service and trying to fit in. The priest had instructed everyone to greet the one next to them by saying, Peace be with you. After the person on Matt's left so greeted him, he turned to the person on his right and said, Pleased to meet you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus said when he greeted the disciples. He said, Peace be with you. That was simply the standard greeting of the day, but I'm sure it had special meaning for the disciples that evening because they were certainly in need of peace. They were confused by the events of the day and fearful for their very lives, so Jesus immediately moved not only to, to say, Peace be with you, but to assure them of something very important. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now, Luke tells us that they thought they were seeing a spirit. And they were frightened by his appearance. So Jesus moved to assure them that it really was him. He, he showed them his hands and his side. Luke adds his feet as well. He even invited them to touch him. To see for himself that he wasn't a spirit it was actually flesh and bone. It was the same Jesus they had spent three years with. The same Jesus who had been crucified in the same body, resurrected from the dead. He even asked if they had anything to eat and then proceeded to eat a piece of fish in their presence. And ghosts can't do that. It was really Jesus, alive in the room with them. It shouldn't have surprised them. He had told them he would rise on the third day, 
but they apparently didn't hear it or believe it. In fact, at the end of Mark's gospel, we find Jesus reproaching them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they didn't even believe those who had seen him after he had risen. But now they saw and believed and rejoiced. Jesus was alive. It was really true. And he had come back not only to assure them, but to commission them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After assuring them that they weren't seeing a ghost, Jesus greeted them again by saying again, Peace be with you. And I'm sure they were more at peace now than when he first appeared. But then he went on to say something that no doubt shook them up again. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He was commissioning them to a life of ministry. Their work wasn't over. It was just beginning. He had completed his work. He had glorified the Father by fulfilling all that needed to be done to make salvation possible. Now it was their job to get that message out. Just as God had sent him into the world, he was sending them into the world with a mission, a great commission. And he would restate their commission at least two more times before ascending into heaven. When meeting with them in Galilee, he would say, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then, just before he lifted up from the Mount of Olives, he said, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. It was a big job he was giving to them. But he wasn't leaving them on their own. For he commissioned them, and then he empowered them. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish we had more details on this, because I'm really not sure exactly what happened here. The word John used to describe Jesus breathing or blowing is used only here in the New Testament. But it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word used in Genesis 2, 7, where it says God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. So surely more is pictured here than a simple expulsion of air. Perhaps Jesus was demonstrating that even in his absence, he would be the source of life, the breath of God for them, and his breath carried with it the Holy Spirit, or at least the promise of the Holy Spirit. I say the promise of the Holy Spirit because he would later tell them to stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high, until the Holy Spirit 
had come upon them. That did happen on the day of Pentecost. When the sound of a violent rushing wind filled the house and tongues of fire rested on them, enabling them to speak the mighty deeds of God in, in foreign languages. We know the Spirit was poured out upon them on Pentecost. What actually happened when Jesus breathed, and the text really doesn't say on them, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe they were actually given a special gift from the Spirit to strengthen them. Maybe they were simply comforted by the presence of the Spirit in the room. Maybe they were just assured that the Spirit would come upon them before they would begin fulfilling the commission He was giving to them. Whatever happened, it no doubt empowered them to do what Christ wanted them to do. You know, He never, never gives us a command without making it possible for us to obey that command. And he would not send them out into the world unless they were equipped and fully authorized to go. He continued, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, Jesus said something very similar to this to Peter. Right after he confessed his belief that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, some have suggested that in saying this, Jesus was giving to Peter more authority than the others. But in Matthew 18, 18, he basically says the same thing to all of them. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I hate to admit it, but the addition of the NASB I use in preaching has this wrong. They had it right when they came out with the entire Bible in 1971 that yielded to pressure in the 1977 edition. The tense of verb used in the Greek is past perfect and is better translated shall have been rather than shall be. The original NASB was the only modern translation to accurately translate it. But they then decided to go along with everyone else when they updated it. I, along with others, I'm sure, wrote to them and told them what we thought of what they had done. They repented and returned to the more accurate translation in the 1995 and the 2020 editions. What Jesus actually said is 
whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He wasn't saying that whatever they bound or loosed on earth, God would then bind or loose in heaven. He was saying that they would be given the privilege of binding or loosening on earth what God had already bound or loosed in heaven. It's a very important distinction to make. And that's in essence what Jesus now tells them in John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, a side note in the edition I still use because of all the notes I've written in it. You can tell it's <laughs> well used. And I actually, contrary to the desire of some, still do like the these and thous in prayer language. But in the edition I have, which is faulty, it actually has an interesting little um, side note. And the side note makes it very clear what he's saying. It says, that is, have previously been forgiven. Jesus wasn't giving the disciples the power of absolution of sin, the power to forgive sin. That power has never been given to any man. We cannot forgive anyone's sin, nor keep it from being forgiven. What we can do is declare the conditions under which forgiveness can be received and warn of the conditions that will keep it from being forgiven. That's our job in the world. Our job is declaring that forgiveness of sin is now possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and declaring that if any will embrace Jesus as Savior, they can be forgiven. That's the authority that was given to the disciples and to all who would be disciples of Christ. We all have the authority to teach what has been revealed in Scripture. We have the privilege of telling men, women, and children how to have their sins forgiven. And if they believe us and act upon it, those sins are forgiven. God has already seen to it. If they accept the gift of God, the Savior will come into their life and make them acceptable to a holy and perfect God. But they must be willing to invite him in. Jesus came into the room through locked doors on a Sunday evening. But he will only come into our hearts if we open the door for him and invite him in. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. What is your answer?